This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. Welcome, everybody, to Spark My Muse. Today, my guest is Jessica Kantrowitz, and she has written the book, The Long Night, Readings and Stories to Help You Through Depression. Thank you so much, Jessica, for being my guest. Hi, I'm really glad to be here. Really enjoyed your book. And when I got it in the mail, it's kind of a little book. And so you're thinking, oh, readings and stories. And then as I read it, it was really personal and it had so many resources. It really describes your journey with depression over many years. And I was really personally struck by how deeply it affected me and also how much it could really help people who know someone who's going through low moods or depression or is having a hard time in general with trauma or PTSD. And so I just wanted to say thank you for writing this wonderful book. Thank you. Before we jump into some of the juicy bits inside, I will say that this book has a lot of healing available and it's part memoir, I think. Uh, I don't know if if your publisher wanted to describe it that way, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, that's fine. It's kind of, to me, it seems like there's quite a bit of you in here. And yes, so it really can help people understand that, that intimate perspective of what might be going on inside somebody that you love or care for or know from work or something like that, that might not make sense on the outside. So sometimes subtitles sell a book short. And I think this is sort of one of those times. It's not the subtitle is Hmm. inaccurate. It's just that it does a lot more than it says. So So well done, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you. When did you first start thinking about creating this book? Was it years back or did something happen that you thought, okay, it's time to get this book written? Well, when I was going through, so in the book, I talk about a major depressive episode Mm -hmm. um, that I went through several years ago. And so while I was going through that and sort of in the long, for me, it took a long time to recover. I was thinking, you know, I'd like to write about my experiences. There were a lot of different relationships at the time, um, people I was living with and people I was working for and and with um, that played a role in it. And I really didn't want to write sort of an expose. You know, I didn't, I wanted to write honestly about what I was going through, but it felt like for a long time, it felt like I couldn't really do that without being bitter Mm. and sort Mm -hmm. of, saying why I felt wrong. I felt many people were understanding me or treating me fairly, mm-hmm. which, you know, to an extent I still think is true, but I, I wanted to wait until I could write um, with as much compassion mm-hmm. and empathy for the other people in my story as for myself. Mm-hmm. I think it was three years ago now that mm-hmm. kind of all came together in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and re- started writing out different chapter ideas. And I came up with the title and the um, description, which is still the description of it on Amazon mm-hmm. is what I wrote that day Yeah, of what I would want it to be. It was time that I had something to offer that was more than just my story that would reach, hopefully reach people who were in a similar place and feeling alone like I did. One of the things you write on Twitter a lot, and it's it's for your book, but it's for people reading Twitter is about feeling less alone and how much that really helps. And it's true. It's, it's true. If you feel 
depressed, one of the things you feel is isolated and alone. And it's Mm -hmm. very difficult to not feel that that isn't the truest reality. Right. You can't really think your way out of it, but you can understand presence. And when someone says you're not alone, it's not going to last forever. Sometimes Mm -hmm. those are the only words you have to cling to really at the time. Right. I think what you did with waiting was really wise for your healing process and the work that would come after. Because if it had been a book more about personality conflicts, people Mm. would have said, well, that's her story. That doesn't sound very much like mine. Right. Everybody's life has struggles with people and work and all that. Everybody has different stories they can tell about that. But what was underneath that was about healing and recovery and restoration and some of the different things you didn't know about yourself and some of the things that really helped you mm-hmm. in very practical terms. Like we can go into some of what those were like CBT and mm-hmm. spiritual practices and things like that, that people might not be aware of how helpful they were for you. That little bit of distance that starts to extricate us from really the circumstances that exacerbate the problems we've had really for a while that can kind of really get us to a breaking Mm. point. I think it's interesting when we have space from that, we realize that might've made it a lot worse, Mm. but this might've happened in different scenarios too. Like I might've had a a breakdown or a a real terrible time in a whole bunch of different scenarios. Right. And, you know, I think I've been struggling with depression my whole life, but didn't really realize before Mm. how much of a role it played in my life, except for briefly in college. I never saw a psychologist, a psychiatrist, I mean, Mm. or was on medication or anything. I just sort of, when I would start to feel down, I would look for ways to change something about my life. So, you know, Mm. when I was in college, I broke up with a boyfriend that wasn't really that great for me and I felt better. And so mm-hmm. when it, when the low yeah. moods would come, I would always look for something to change. So I moved around a lot. I, you know, went to school and dropped out of school and re-enrolled and tried various jobs. Um, so it was sort of the, the circumstances of the time that I write about, there wasn't anything that I could think of to change about my life. Like my parents had mm. moved into a retirement community where Um, They couldn't have guests for more than a month. So like Mm -hmm. moving home with my parents for a while wasn't an option anymore. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just little things like that where I felt like, okay, this is where I am. I can't change anything about my external situation. Mm -hmm. So I guess it's time to look internally and finally figure out what's going on in here. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. But knowing what you know now... What would you have done differently? When would you have sought intervention of some kind and what sort of things would you have chosen? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure because um, my treatment isn't sort of the typical antidepressant. I never found an antidepressant that worked for me. So it had to be a combination of a Mm -hmm. um, mood stabilizer that I take, um, which actually Mm -hmm. I'm on a really low dose, so it may not even be helping my mood. But I, I think it helps with my migraines, so that's why I stay on it. Um, but it had to be really about lifestyle changes for me. And I think part of that was that um, the culture that I was in um, 
wasn't the right fit for me and the the work I was trying to do wasn't the right fit. And I don't think I was really ready to Hmm. hear that or to face that in my 20s. So I don't know if I could have really done anything differently or if it was just a process that I had to go through. Do you think that your ways of, like you said, you depression wasn't something just out of nowhere. You had, as a kid, mm-hmm. had had different struggles. And do you think, especially as you've kind of added spiritual dimensions and, and different ways of processing through, you know, understanding your body more, accepting yourself mm. more in a way it's kind of like a retraining of how you sort of cope with the world. Yeah, definitely. And so you didn't really have the tools at that point in your life really to approach things differently. Right. I mean, I, I had, I saw counselors a couple of times and my mom's actually a, mm-hmm. a counselor. Um, and so mm-hmm. the tools were sort of there, but I wasn't really, they didn't make sense mm-hmm. to me at the time. Like um, cognitive behavioral therapy, I read some of it and I was like, well, this seems like just trying to make yourself better by pretending that you're better, <laughs> which is not really what cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy is. Um, but at the time I was like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> For someone who has no idea what you're talking about, like, how did you implement it that it helped you? For me, in order to get to a place where I was ready to do the work of like gratitude and refocusing my negative thoughts and like training myself to um, focus more on reality and um, like not as much on negative um, potential situations. Um, I think Mm -hmm. I really just had to go deep into the hard parts first, like into my Mm -hmm. own sorrow and into my own, grief and into my trauma. Um, you know, I, I don't mm-hmm. think I, anything super traumatic happened to me in my life, but a lot of smaller things that just as a sensitive person sort of registered as trauma. Yeah. Right. Well, that's, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's not like it has to be these cataclysmic things, but how you're perceiving them and how, you know, if you have a tender heart, it, it can really be a ruinous thing on, on a young right. person. It matters. Like, it's not like it's a contest, like who has the most traumatic life? Right. Step forward and then you get a special prize of some kind of mental <laughs> troubles. Yeah. <laughs> right. Mm. Yeah. Your, you, your feelings are your feelings. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, valid or invalid based on what other people's opinions are of how you should be feeling. There's a few things I'm going to pull out that I, I think are are these really great bits of insight that I think would, well, they certainly help me and I think they'd help lots of people. And on page 47, you talk about anger, which is is really difficult for people who've, who have felt traumatized or hurt or betrayed or any number mm-hmm. of things. And you talk about repenting of anger and that that never helped you let go of it. And I have really mm-hmm. encountered that personally myself. It's because it feels, feels sinful to have angry thoughts that you hang right. on to. Right. And so you think, well, I'll repent of it. it I'll just, I'll just say, I'm sorry for that. I'll try not to do that anymore. But actually it's, it isn't really taken care of because anger is like a red flag for something that needs to be right. dealt with at some deeper level, right? 
And I thought that was a really helpful little bit there that you can just repent and repent and repent of it. And then there it still right. is. And another another bit, you and you can feel free to expound on any of these that I'm pulling okay. out, but there's this other part too that I, I thought was great. You talk about quiet times. And for people who don't understand the lingo, there is, um, I guess, in evangelical circles, a quiet time would be like um, reading scripture and prayer mm-hmm. and things like that. That's what I'm familiar with. There's a lot of pressure. Did you have your quiet time today? And, you know, if you, if you didn't do right. that... <laughs> You pretty soon you won't go to church and who knows right. what could happen. It's just a it's just a backsliding downward spiral from there. You talk about how when we're really struggling with with pain, with depression, with anxiety, or or other kinds of trauma, coming up with the words to pray can be quite difficult. And you can feel like you're really letting down God mm. if you don't do the right kind of prayer or say something halfway intelligent or right to have the desire to read scriptures. And you mentioned that spending time with scripture went from feeling empty to feeling actively painful and how yeah. the role of silence really was this kind of game changing thing for you in spiritual terms. It would be great if you could expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, um, I started having those, you know, daily quiet times or almost daily when I was 15, actually. Um, and I did it not out of anyone else's expectation, but just because I was really loving reading the Bible and connecting to God in that way. I'm um, an introvert, so I really like my alone time. And it was a great time. When I was 16, I think a youth group leader gave us this, you know, read through the Bible in a year schedule. And I just, I loved how organized it was. And it told you exactly what to read and you would like read a little bit of the old Testament and a little bit of the new Testament every night. And I loved it. And so I did something like that. Um, I think at least three times uh, in my, you know, teens and twenties and read through all every word of the Bible and, you know, had my favorite parts that I would read and reread. Um, And then I would, I would pray either in my head or writing in a journal. So it was very, um, like communicating with God. This particular time that I write about in the book when the depression got bad, it just felt like those beautiful words of scripture that meant so much to me. Suddenly, best analogy I could come up with is eating really great food and suddenly it just tastes like sand. There's just like, there was nothing there. And I, it was even more than like not getting anything out of it. It was really upsetting because like this was how I used to feed myself spiritually and it wasn't available to me anymore. So yeah, um, my friend uh, suggested centering prayer, which is um, a kind of prayer uh, where you don't say words really. You just, it's more like meditation. You you have a prayer word that you can say if you need it, um, something like Jesus or peace But really, it's just you quiet yourself. You're not trying not to think. Like we were saying about anger, if you try not to have a feeling or try not to have thoughts, it's impossible. But you're just sort of being aware of your your thoughts and your feelings without uh, jumping in to them. So like you could picture Mm. them as clouds 
floating above you and you're, you know, mm-hmm. deep underneath and that you can see them, you're, you haven't stopped mm-hmm. thinking or feeling, but they're not affecting you. Um, and mm. that, the, I remember the first time I tried it, it was just like, I had, I didn't have the, I always say I didn't have the nice, uh, peaceful kind of depression where you just like lie there and feel like <laughs> crap. I had like an anxious kind of depression. Mm. So my thoughts were just constantly like trying to figure out what's wrong. What can I do to change this? Why do I feel so bad? What, what am I doing wrong? Mm-hmm. What, who can I call, you know? And so the first time mm-hmm. I did centering prayer, it was just like 15 minutes of peace all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even necessarily that I felt like I connected with God right away, but more just mm-hmm. like I was able to take a step back from all the thoughts and all the feelings and all the words to a place where words weren't as important. Um, Mm. and then after I did it for a while, it did, it did become, it did feel more, um, like a way of connecting to God that was still very different Mm -hmm. from the quiet times I was used to. Right. It it doesn't rely on intellectual prowess or figuring things out, or it's really a prayer of the heart as Tom Smyrn Mm -hmm. calls it, or, you know, it's something spirit to spirit all the expectations get dropped. Right. Like, you don't even have to be clever. Yeah. Because I remember one of the worst things that happened to me was that I learned that axe type oh, yeah. of prayer. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know it's really helpful for some people. That's so cool. But for me, it was like adoration, confession, Thanksgiving. So, yeah. Okay. If I don't get this right, I bet God is disappointed. And I really want to get this right. Very pleasing the parent right. kind of thing yeah. for me. So <laughs> it was like an anxious little wreck. And I had a, a spiritual director, a Catholic a Jesuit trained mm. grandma, and she's she's like, "Oh, you don't have to say anything." Yeah, I was like, "Well, that sounds lovely." Yeah, <laughs> like, she's like, "God is always at work." I'm like, I, you know, you could be laying flat on your back, not a word said. That's that's also good. I was just like, "Dang, that's awesome!" Yeah, you can let your brain you could just allow it to just kind of chatter on and like go into the background. Right. And for me, that was huge because it was very, I was very queen of the sword mm. drills and yeah, <laughs> like, check out me. I had to, I had to memorize all these verses to get a free thing at oh, camp, yeah. which I, you know, I was, I love camp, but I'm like, what can I do? That's awesome. Yeah. You know, <laughs> this is the opposite. Actually try nothing. Yeah. I was like, <gasps> that sounds like a real prize. Right. It's really interesting because like that whole figure it out, that depression mixed with anxiety is really common for people. And some people will be like, they can't get out of bed. They can't eat. They can't Mm -hmm. do anything. I'm definitely more on the migraine anxiety side and figure it out, figure it out. You can beat this. You can think your way out. It was just soul food Mm -hmm. for me. The problem is, is that I'm trying too hard and I'm not allowing grace. Right. I'm thinking it's good for other people, but not for me. Yeah. 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 And, and do you trust God or not? You know, like, do you really think God is going Mm. to leave you vulnerable because you're trying harder to connect with God? On page 56, you talk about embodied ways of healing. And I love this. It's another 
thing for overthinker types where we'll stay in our heads and everything just stays up there rattling around over and over. Our bodies are just basically to carry this crazy hamster wheel thing around from mm-hmm. room to room. We forget that we right. have bodies until maybe they hurt really bad. <laughs> uh, you notice a bruise and you're like, what mm-hmm. in the world was that about? And so talk about some of the embodied ways of healing that you learned about or that helped you the most. I'm really on the extreme end of that. Like I can get, I several times have gotten so lost into my thoughts that when someone speaks mm-hmm. to me, I'm literally surprised that they can see me because I don't feel like I'm wow. present yeah. physically. I wow. feel like I'm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, well, yoga was a really big thing for me. And um, mm-hmm. it took me a while to get into yoga because I would go to classes and I um, I have like a competitive streak in me. <laughs> and I've always, I've always been um, like bigger than other girls and women. And so there's like something in me that's like, okay, well, I'm going to show those, you know, skinny women in the yoga class that I can keep up with them. And then I end up pushing myself too hard and, and hurting myself, which is oh. like the opposite of the point of yoga, right? I would try it on and off for years, but um, it wasn't until I found a really neat um, online yoga class, um, oh. Eckhart Yoga, with this just wonderful, mm. like, she's the founder is a Dutch woman, and she just has like the gentlest voice and She's been through a lot of trauma herself. Um, so I think she really speaks with a lot of empathy and compassion. And you can tell. Um, so that was great. And the other great thing about the site is that it has, I don't mean to do a commercial for Eckhart Yoga here, but it has, um, <laughs> you can sort all their classes. They have like a couple hundred classes and you could sort them by length or by type of yoga or by teacher or so Mm -hmm. you know it was Mm -hmm. kind of like you could go and have a full class or you could think well I only feel Mm -hmm. like I have enough energy for a 20 minute class um and I so I learned you know that my body didn't necessarily like to do an hour and 15 minute yoga class but if I did it for 30 minutes it was wonderful and so that really um, was huge in helping me to feel like I was, like you said, embodied and not just this brain blundering about. I've been so surprised at how just just stretching into every part of your mm. body. It's it's so simple, right? It's like, should this be this transformative? Mm. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> right. You know, if people have problems with yoga, call it stretching, but just do it as yeah. much as you can. Because it's it's just like, oh... I have toes. Right. Yeah. Remember this. If you're stuck in your head, if you've been traumatized, mm. especially bodily traumatized, or you just do a job where you're mostly in your head, like a writer mm-hmm. or, or whatever, or desk job or something, you don't need your body right. in a way. And so you just, we just discredit the thing and it really matters. And so we were watching, my husband and I would do like a 10 minute one just at the end of the day I slept so Mm. much better just by making sure that I felt more loose it was shocking how much different I felt and then in the morning now I try to 
okay, I'm back in my body again, mm. you know, and I try to just stretch as high as I can to the ceiling. It is almost creepy how much <laughs> I've disregarded my <Yeah>. body. <laughs> and we're incarnated, you know, like Jesus was incarnated. He wasn't an orb, right. <laughs> <laughs> just kind of moving around. And so it, it is really important, I think, that at least in the Western world, we are kind of just talking heads and brains. Mm. And we don't realize how unhealthy that is. When we actually feel sick, it's because our body is basically broken down right. by then. And you're at a point of real injury and disease by then. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't take that much. You know, it shouldn't take the total breakdown of your body to realize, oh, wait, something hurts here. Right. You should be able to feel your body, but we just don't have habits yeah. like that. A lot of the things you you talk about in your book, too, about how you felt about your body are all things that I can relate to, too. There's this kind of wind up absorbing or ingesting different kinds of body hatred Mm. as a woman. Many people do all different sizes of people and all different kinds of people for different reasons. And, um, you know, wind up not wanting to look at yourself in the mirror or not wanting to shop for jeans or whatever the case may be. So you wind up trying to like ignore it or shape it or force it to do something, but it doesn't feel like it's mm. you. It feels like something you're fighting right. against. <laughs> and then later it like turns on you, gets sick or, mm. you know, only as I'm getting a bit older and I'm thinking, oh, I, I could actually befriend this. This isn't just like this inconvenient thing. Right. It's actually it deserves tenderness. It deserves befriending and care mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And I think your book really covers that well about how healing involves all these reconnecting parts. It's not just, I hope my brain feels better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think we're all learning that um, in new ways now because of the pandemic. Like we, we are in ways that we used to physically connect with other people or at least be in the same room with other people. Now it's all online. And I think a lot of us are realizing, you know, that we are, we do have a body and our bodies are social. We're social creatures that need each other's physical company and touch, you know, to function at our best levels. What does a human being need? Well, human being needs more than to speak to other people or to have a, a conversation that involves thought. There's so much more, and you don't realize it till you're cut off. Mm-hmm. What other ways besides yoga have you found to be ways of embodied healing for you? Well, a couple other um, exercises, um, ways of exercising that are really helpful to me are um, swimming, which I actually wrote about in that chapter that you just mentioned. Um, cause it, it's a different way of being aware of your body just when every part of your skin is being touched by the water and, um, you move differently through the water. And so you're, for me, I, I think more about what my body is doing and how it's all working together. Cause like when you're walking, you're using your legs mainly, like your arms are swinging a little bit, but. Um, when you're swimming, it's your arms and legs and they're working together almost without you thinking about it. It's like your body knows what to do kind of. Um, so that's really helpful. And then I like to bike um, as well because it gets me 
outside and in nature. Um, and it's a, a way of sort of participating in movement and being a part of um, like the air streaming past me and hearing hearing the birds and um, smelling and uh, seeing the scenery around me. Um, so those are really good. I think also um, something that it's not really a, a at least – for me, it wasn't really a mental health practice so much as something um, that was prescribed for my migraines, but it was uh, biofeedback. Um, mm. So I, I, my neurologist sent me to have biofeedback, and I wasn't really sure what it was. Um, but they hooked hooked me up to like this machine that was measuring. Um, was it measuring? I think it was measuring how much I sweat, my heart rate, my breath, all these different things. And then you just basically meditate, but you mm. are getting feedback from the machine about how your meditation is affecting your body. And so you sit and you mm. meditate. It's basically like centering prayer, really, except without the religious mm. aspect. You meditate for 15 minutes by yourself, and then the doctor comes back in and you look at the graph together and see, you know, oh, mm -hmm. here's when you're, when you started. And then here's when your body really realized it was safe to relax and your heart rate slowed. And, you know, you, um, I don't know what happens to your sweat exactly, but <laughs> so it's a, it's a really interactive way to observe yourself. And, um, it's, it's trying to train yourself in the opposite of the fight or flight response yeah, so that your body will know how to calm itself instead of panicking, which is really like when you struggle with anxiety, you're sort of constantly in that elevated fight or flight, like something's wrong, I need to fix it. Mm. And your body is responding to that. And that's why it's so hard to calm down and to sleep. You know, I, I looked into that quite a bit too. It's also hard to form memories. It's hard to plan mm. for the future. It, there's all right. kinds of things that go on offline. And it's, and that's why um, you can over the long term uh, cause organ damage and, and things like that too, because your, your body mm. is, is ready. It can, it can do that for just a short time with, with great expertise, but it can't do it over the long term uh, mm. very well. It's just, it's too, too difficult for the body to sustain that over a long right. period. Of time. So um, it's, it's great that biofeedback is, is a, it's a, just a, like a training tool, right? It's, it's right. kind of, like, yeah. here's how you're doing and here's how, here's where you did pretty good. Here's where it started. Here's what ended. And then you can kind mm -hmm. of figure out how you're doing it and how to improve. And it turned out um, the the doctor who led me in biofeedback actually turned out to be have been friends with Henri Nouwen. Oh wow! Was um, one of my favorite spiritual writers. So that was kind of neat. They studied centering prayer together, and so the doctor was you know interested in the spiritual aspect of what he was doing as well. Wow. On page sixty six, you talk about getting back to the brain actually, but getting back to. Oh. Um, cognitive distortions. I, I thought this is great. When we when we realize what cognitive distortions are, we can kind of check in with ourselves. This is sort of like a, a cognitive feedback. Um, you, you mentioned several polarizing thinking, thinking black and white, 
um, overgeneralizing, jumping to conclusions, catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. If you catch yourself in these patterns, this is what's hard because if you're doing it, it's hard to realize it when you're doing it, but it's for myself. If I catch myself in a kind of a, a panicky mind frame or an anxious, something bad happens. It's usually for me, not just one bad thing, it'll be a series of things. And then I'll catch myself in cognitive dissonance. I'll think things are either all bad or all good, or right. I will think this thing that on its own wouldn't be a very big deal. Suddenly to me, it seems huge. Right. The jumping to conclusions is another one. Like, oh, if this happens, then we're all going to die or, you know, whatever it is. Right. It's really easy to do. Now we can see it happening in mass because of a real threat of COVID. Mm. There is a real threat. It's generalizing in societal ways. You're seeing people jump to conclusions with, we're all in jeopardy of dying. Well, we're not. We're not all in jeopardy of dying, but you do get a sense that people are starting to think in those terms because mm. it is a scary time. It, lots of us could get sick. Yeah. Lots of us won't die. Right. It's really interesting because there are vulnerable people and you want to take care of them, but it puts us in a fight or flight state. Right. Yeah. Actually, the thing that I precipitate on, to use another um, social science word, is not so much me getting sick, but me being responsible for getting someone else sick. Yeah, that's really hard. Yeah. Because I, my landlords live downstairs from me and they're elderly. They're in their 70s, I think. Mm -hmm. So every time I go out, I'm like, did I wash my hands? Could I be touching the doorknobs? And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. although now we know that it's not so much through touch that it's transmitted, but through the air. Mm-hmm. The aerosol, yeah, breathing yeah. into the lungs, and and it's and it's no wonder because when something this size, this worldwide, when everything shuts down like it does, it's hard to not think. Well, it's no big deal because <laughs> mm-hmm. literally everything has shut down. Everybody is taking it seriously in terms of like the government, world governments, and things like that. So it's easy to to go into different types of cognitive dissonance. And if you're already bent toward that through suffering through with anxiety or depression, it's not going to make it any easier during this era. Right. Just knowing that those things are possible is good. And I appreciated reading those because I've noticed it's easy to look back and see, oh yeah, I would do that when you're in a little bit of a better place. You can notice it in other people probably better than yourself at at times. This is taking a person to a real edge right now because they're really afraid. But it's important that we know what happens when somebody is feeling triggered and um, in a bad place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And sometimes even just asking yourself, what if is -hmm. enough to to shift yourself out of it? Like, Mm -hmm. what if it's what if it's not as bad as you think it is or mm. what if what if you are going to be okay mm. opens the possibility you know other than the the horrible scenarios that you've been imagining right well there's a lot of reasons to think especially if you've gone through things it's a lot of like i've been through some tough things before and i will also get through this this isn't any fun this is no fun at all yeah 
but I've also been through stuff. So I know it's going to be okay. It's just going to be long right. and hard. And it's easier to do that as you get older. And when you're younger in your 20s, mm. your teens, everything can really feel like the very end. Yeah. That's why presence is so helpful to come alongside people and say, mm. I've seen more, I've seen more life than you. And it really does suck. But I'm going to stay right here by you and things are going to work out and they're going to be okay. Yeah. Might not be pretty, but we're going to get through this. Right. And then the next thing will come and we'll have to get through that. Yeah. Yep. When I tweet, um, every day I tweet the words that are in the moon of the front cover of my book. Mm. You are not alone and this will not last forever. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes people are like, well, how do you know this won't last forever? And, you know, like that seems pretty optimistic at this point. (laughs) So I I always try to say, you know, I don't mean by that that there's this bright, cheerful future necessarily. Mm -hmm. But I mean, there's going to be better times. Mm -hmm. There's going to be hard times ahead too. But this particular hard time that you're going through Mm -hmm. is going to shift. It's going to pass. You're Mm -hmm. not going to be stuck in this moment forever. And that's what it felt like to me when the depression was really bad. Mm. Like it's been like this for months and months. What if it's like this for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. Right. So just to, to know that nothing lasts forever. Pain doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. Happiness doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. Things are constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. And Yeah. Like you said, that there's going to be hard times and they're going <laughs> to suck, but you can get through it. And there's a lot to gain from other cultures, mm. aside from white ones, <laughs> right? <laughs> Who've suffered so much, so much more than Americans, white Americans. Yeah. Have. You know, it's been pretty much a cakewalk mm-hmm. as a group, anyway. When you see some of the suffering that's happened, like in Central and Latin America, and yeah. And republics of South America, they're continually going through one government after another and starving, and and they're not down there uh, just giving up and killing themselves. They're just mm-hmm. going through the next problem, right? <laughs> they're finding ways to dance and be happy, and they're not always happy, but they're finding ways to carry on. Yeah, it's possible the human spirit is actually very resilient. Maybe it doesn't seem like that if we're expecting this wonderful parade every day or something. But if we just realize that actually we tend to be much stronger than think, it just sucks, really sucks sometimes. Yeah. But when we looked at other groups of people, that's kind of how we can realize that. Maybe we can't look at our own group, but it does happen in the world and throughout history. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the insidiousness of the American dream, I think, is that it it gives us these expectations of the sort of luxurious, happy life. And then when we don't have that, not only are we upset and frustrated, but we blame ourselves. Yeah. For, you know, not stole my dream. Either someone stole my dream or I'm such a failure. Why didn't why don't I have, you know, the the two awesome cars with the big house and the family mm-hmm. and the dog and there must be something terribly wrong with me and like someone sold you kind of a piece of crap lie because yeah you decide what makes you happy it could be very very different right. 
work because I know people who have that life and, you know, they day drink constantly. <laughs> so, so I don't know if they're happy, but they are drunk. Yeah. <laughs> so right. is that the dream though? Because yeah. I don't know. I don't know if it's a great dream. Maybe for some people. I know a lot of people who have what seems like the dream. It looks like that on the outside, but actually, if you take a closer look, uh, they're probably wondering, wait a minute, this was supposed to be pretty awesome. Right. On page 142, I'd like to make sure we cover this for people who are going through stuff, because you talk about Job, and mm. it's always really tricky. And this is this goes for me just as much as anybody else, but knowing what to say to people who are really struggling, mm. people who are reading this book to get some insight for their own struggles, but maybe for someone who's struggling too, because a lot of people are struggling right now. And it's hard to know what to say. And on page 142, you start to go into some of that. What do we say to people who are having a hard time? We don't know what to say, or we don't, you know, we don't want to start being preachy, and we don't want to say, God is doing this or that, giving them answers that will just add salt to these open wounds. Right. And I like how you approach this because I think this can be very hard. People can wind up feeling extremely alone, even when they're surrounded by people who are trying to help. Yeah. And God doesn't give us answers. You, you talk about how God doesn't lay everything out for Job, but there's presence there. And right. I'd love for you to just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, that's a Frederick Buechner quote, actually. God doesn't give us answers. God gives us presence. Um, he was writing about Job. Yeah, I think one thing that happens with me, and it's it happens, I think, to people with mental illnesses and to people with um, chronic illness, that especially things like migraines or um, maybe chronic fatigue syndrome, things that just kind of go on and on and they're um, kind of nebulous. It's not like mm. something as clear cut as cancer where, you know, there's a treatment and there's measurements to show how well the treatment is working. Mm -hmm. But um, people, people want to help you and they pray for you. And maybe at first they're like really sympathetic and empathetic Mm -hmm. But then as it keeps going on, I think people kind of start to wonder like, well, why aren't you getting better? Like mm -hmm. we we've been praying for you. Ha hasn't it been working or, you know, haven't you been seeing your doctor and taking the steps you need to take? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, even I don't think people intend this, but they can get frustrated with the sick person. Mm -hmm. And then it just feels like this miserable pressure because, when you're depressed, you're already frustrated with yourself mm. and feeling blaming yourself and trying to figure out what you're doing wrong. And so to have other people, you know, feel like what they're offering you for help comes with judgment. Mm. It's just really rough. Mm. So for me, um, I think the two things that were the most helpful and the most important when I was struggling were just people's presence and their, compassion you know my friend actually got really frustrated with me because mm. she kept wanting she kept wanting to um 
like give me advice or like guide me through a Bible study or something about suffering. And it's not what I needed. And so I would try to tell her what I need is just prayer and compassion. Hmm. And then, but it didn't, that didn't make sense to her. But then I had another friend who was also struggling with a lot of really bad health issues. Hmm. He would just say, that really sucks. I'm really sorry that you're going through this. And it was, that was what I needed, you know, to feel like someone saw me and knew Mm -hmm. how much pain I was in and didn't blame me or, you know, didn't feel like I wasn't rushing towards healing fast enough. Just kind of acknowledging the depth of hurt you might feel or the depth of how bad it is without trying to get you anywhere. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to say that people don't need practical help too, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you have to be aware of like, if they're really asking you for practical help or if you're imposing that on them. So besides your friend saying that sucks and I'm here for you, were there other things that made a difference for you? One big thing that helped me, and this is a big aspect of my book, is um, finding other people who had gone through similar things mm. and had written about it. Mm-hmm. So um, I mentioned Henri Nouwen earlier. Yes. He, he wrote, um, he went through a really difficult experience that he never called depression, mm. um, but it sounded a lot like depression to me. Yeah. It was just sort of a total mental collapse and um he was filled with pain and confusion um and he wrote a journal for himself every night while he was um in therapy for this and so his book is his journal so it was written to himself so it's in the second person you know he says you Mm -hmm. he was originally talking to himself but it feels like because what our experience was so similar. It felt like mm. he was reaching out and talking to me. Yeah. So just, you know, knowing that I wasn't the only one who had gone through something like that and had gotten frustrated because there weren't easy answers, but yeah. had had hung on and pushed through. That was extremely helpful. Yeah. That's called the inner voice of love. And I right, have that yeah. book and I find it so, um, it's very private, personal. You can tell it's his private journal. And right. it's really nugget size because these are just like little things he wrote. But since his things are so, he's so connected to people. He's so social. Mm. I found, wow, I, I related to lots of them. Like he would talk about people disappointing him and how hard he took it because he was so, so connected and he didn't feel that was reciprocated. and. Mm. He's trying to kind of talk himself into a better place. <laughs> you know, he's talking about right. letting God meet those needs. It's kind of a, almost a psalm, like, why so downcast, oh, my soul? Mm. Yeah. To me, that's a classic that's so evergreen. Like, you, you could read it in 35 mm. years. It's just going to golden, you know, just perfect. Right. I saw in your book how much he meant to you and your journey. And I, I could say the exact same thing. He's just the kind of person who was so, he might've been a little bit of a nervous wreck in real life. If you knew him as a friend, <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. 
but now that we have his work and he's gone, he is kind of all of us who've just endured anxiety and, you know, have struggled, which is lots and lots of us. Yeah. <laughs> who just felt like at the end of the rope or why can't I make the connections or keep the connections or feel the love I want to feel. And mm. it just is, it's just so powerful and it is good to know. It's good to know that he was this kind of raw nerve of a person and he could get right. his heart broken. And now it's here for us as this, it's kind of like a medicine. Yeah. And he was a great um, spiritual writer and teacher. Mm -hmm. He helped so many people, um, but he had this deep inner pain that he struggled with throughout his life. You know, he might have not known, oh, I'm sure he didn't know all of the ways that he would be helping people decades and decades after his death. Mm. And here he suffered and he might have been like, why, Lord, why? And here we are talking about him decades and decades later saying his words yeah. helped, helped me. You know, it, it's just amazing. Right. And you won't know that about your book, right? So mm. somebody's going to get your book at some point, you'll never know them. And they'll say, she suffered, but now I'll, I don't have to suffer in the same way. I mean, we just never know how these ripples come out and how mm. our pain eventually somehow finds these redemptive places, these crevices in people's hearts that can be this balm. And, and I think that's exactly how grace works. And uh, mm. somebody's pain serves us to somehow, and, and our pain serves somebody else somehow. And yeah. Jesus's pain serves us too. Do you know, it's like just kind of how right. it works. It's not like, well, you have to suffer or someone else won't be well. It's not like that. But it's just mm -hmm. that it's not all in vain. Right. Yeah. And so we don't have to think it's all wasted suffering. And that's why when we do suffer, we can share our stories with other people and we can be a witness and not just say, hey, you know, Jesus made everything great. I've, mm -hmm. I'm really fine all the time. You know, it's just like, well, actually, sometimes it really sucks. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to be okay. Being truthful about that life can really suck and we can have a really hard time, I think is very important to a life of faith and a life of witness. We have to be present for other people. And how are we going to do it if we're not really very, very honest? If we're not telling the truth about what's going on in our own hearts, how can we help mm. other people? Mm. We're just presenting, you know, a, a facade. Exactly. Now, did you feel that that you were on the receiving end of judgment for having mental unwellness or depression? Well, I mean, that's part of the coming full circle to when we were first starting, um, when we were first talking this hour about, I didn't want to write about this until I could mm -hmm. be more empathetic of the people in my story. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of people just don't really understand depression. Yeah. I had friends who saw me as like this wonderfully energetic, enthusiastic, spiritual person and yeah. knew me that way for a year. And then all of a sudden I was just like never coming out of my room. And when I did, mm. I was crying and mm. it just didn't make sense to them. And so I felt yeah. like they cared about me a lot, but they didn't understand what I was going through. And they mm. 
just wanted me to snap out of it, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a fearful thing for people to see too, because they might wonder, oh, am I next? Or we're all vulnerable to low moods, of course, and just going through struggle. But we can be vulnerable to chemical depression where we might need to have medication and things like that. But that's fine. If we have diabetes, we also need medication. (laughs) We might have some sort of infection, which medication can help us through and Mm -hmm. and other things. If you um, tear your ACL, you might need some pain reliever and then a whole bunch of therapy. Mm-hmm. And everybody's going to be okay with that. But it's thinking about our brain as also our body mm. can help us realize that our body gets sick and our brain is our body. Right. And that's part of the deal. Yeah. When you have a body, it sometimes doesn't work. Right. And that's because we are biological. We're not machines. It's normalizing what being a human is. Mm. And I was talking about this to Marlena is that Jesus was an anxious, nervous wreck in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's just no other way to look at that. He was having a super hard time and he asked his friends to stay up and pray with him. Why why would he need them emotionally? Apparently he did though, right? Right. Were you healthier and better than Jesus? Mm. He was crying. He was having a whole episode. Yeah. Well, because he was a human being who was stressed out of his dang mind. Mm-hmm. And it's like people can get super anxious, even apparently the incarnation of God. Right. So I think we're okay if we get anxious and depressed sometimes. Yeah. But you can even look to Jesus, who definitely had some real sketchy moments of, of not feeling great. So... Mm-hmm. I'm glad that's in the Bible. People want to make Jesus into not a man way too often. Mm-hmm. He was hungry. I think he did get sick. I think he did get constipated. I think he <laughs> did have the whole range and that that is actually the point. Right. That he did have mental distress and he did feel betrayed and hurt. And that actually is the point. We'll somehow make each other feel like, well, gosh, is something wrong? Are you going to have to go see a doctor? I don't know. That's not okay. It's important that we have resources and people that we know have been through stuff so that we can say, I'm struggling right now. And that person goes, well, I've struggled too. And I totally get it. And you are going to be okay. Yeah. As you put those messages out on Twitter and as you bring your book into the world and into bigger audiences, that light is really important. Do you have any final words or anything you'd like to say to listeners or where to find you? Oh, where to find me? Um, yes, I'm on Twitter. Uh, JF Cantrowitz there. And then Jessica Cantrowitz on um, Instagram. I'm pretty active on both of those places. How do you keep from getting dragged down by social media? That's a good question. It's definitely been weighing on me the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. It was really a resource to me when I was um, depressed. I think um, it was actually before Facebook. <laughs> it was um, on MySpace that I yeah. started connecting to people. And it was just so important 
when I couldn't get out of bed most mm. days to have a way of connecting with other people. I've managed to carry a pretty um, healthy timeline on those places. I follow people who I learn from mm. and who encourage me. Um, it's not That doesn't necessarily mean positive people, you know, like mm -hmm. I think it's important to listen to the Black Lives Matter protesters now and, you know, people who are speaking prophetically mm -hmm. to our world and, and troubling the waters. Um, but also I, I try really hard not to jump into arguments online yeah. unless I feel like um, my voice or my perspective is one that's not really being heard in the conversation. And I feel like there's a chance that people might actually listen, you know, but otherwise it's just like, am I going to regret this five mm. hours later when it's midnight and I can't sleep because people are still re replying to this argument <laughs> and like better, better not to get involved at all. And of course I, I just try to put out a lot of positivity and an encouragement myself. Well, do you have any final things you want to tell potential readers or, or anything else before we go? Depression is incredibly isolating and it, it lies to you. It sort of pinpoints the, your greatest fears about yourself and your greatest insecurities. Um, and it, it tells you that you're alone. So for anyone who's listening to this, who's struggling, um, it's, it's not true. You're not alone. And it's not true um, that this is never going to end because it, it will, that things will shift and, you know, changes will come. You won't always be joyful, but you won't always feel as bad as you do right now. Thank you so much for this. The book is called The Long Night, Readings and Stories to Help You Through Depression by Jessica Kantrowitz. You're not alone and this won't last forever. Go get the book. I know that it will really something that should stay on your shelf and help you with your own life and probably those that you love too. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you, Lisa.